Today's reading is Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. The word of the Lord. There are no words to express the abyss between isolation and having one ally. It may be conceded to the mathematician that four is twice two, but two is not twice one. Two is 2,000 times one. I love that quote, which is from none other than Gilbert Keith Chesterton himself. And so as part of the running joke to have a Chesterton quote in every single sermon in this series, which I dropped the ball on last week, sorry, but it's only fitting as we close our our sermon series um, on a long obedience in the same direction, the beautiful book by Eugene Peterson going through Psalms 120 through 134, the Psalms of Ascent, to see what they teach us about being a disciple, about being a follower of Christ. And so Peterson highlights that these Psalms of Ascent, these were a hymn book for God's people as they were on pilgrimage. And that's an apt metaphor for the life of Christian faith, that we are on pilgrimage with Christ towards God. And so far, we've seen the great themes that they trace in terms of what it means to follow Jesus, seeing how these psalms teach us about joy and hope and repentance and security and help and happiness and humility and service and perseverance. All of these great characteristics, these great traits, these practices, these habits of the heart for those who follow Jesus. But all of them presuppose something that we're going to finally get to today in our penultimate uh, sermon in this series. And that's community. The fact that these are a hymn book should lead us to understand that these songs were never meant to be sung alone. These aren't for a solo performance. They're meant to be sung as a part of a great, sort, uh, a great chorus. And we even see that in the the structure of some of these psalms. In Psalm 124, there's this call and response inherent in the text itself. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, the psalmist says. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, you know, when I say, hey, you say, ha, that kind of thing. Call and response. And so, yes, of course, we, we, we participate in the chorus with our individual voices, But when we do so, we become a part of the chorus. That's one of the lamentable aspects of the decline of choral singing in in the church, because choirs were a very tangible, visible reminder and expression of, of the value, the theological value that the church has always placed on community. You know, it used to be every week in, in church, a large portion of the congregation all dressed in the same robes, they they'd ascend. And and they'd come and they'd go sit right in this choir loft, right here. And so you'd be reminded of of this community, this many voices being one voice reality. Now they just look like some extra overflow seating. Some people occasionally even threaten to sit in those, just come into church and go sit in those and awkwardly stare at the rest of the congregation. I named names in the first service, but that person is here, so maybe I'm not going to name, I'm just looking at them right now at that person who was like, I'm just going to go sit in those seats one day. What are you going to do about it? 
which is a really interesting question. What would I do if someone just sat in the choir loft during church and we were all uncomfortable but too Minnesota nice to do anything about it? If you ever want to pull a prank, that's, there you go. There's an easy, there's an easy one to do. But, but the choir comes in and, and, and they're, you know, not just leading us in music, but there are they're, they're many voices becoming one voice in collectively leading us and collectively singing praises to God. And of course, it's not just about their performance on Sundays. Throughout the week, they're getting together to practice together, to practice what they do on Sunday. Again, another, you know, testimony to what Christian community does. We practice to prepare to praise God. And if you've ever been part of a choir, I mean, it's the same as a team, but there's like a strong social component to it as well. There's fellowship. They care for each other. And so in all of those ways, I'm sure ones I didn't even name, choirs are a parable, a living parable for the type of community envisioned by these psalms. And so Psalm 133, in talking about community, it identifies what is good, and then it gives us two poetic illustrations for why. So what's good is community, is, is, is brothers and sisters dwelling together in unity. And so community is good. That's what, what verse 1 says. It's good. It's the Hebrew word is tov, exact same word that we find right there in Genesis 1 as God is reflecting on the quality of creation, saying, and God saw that it was good. And human beings were created for community. God says in Genesis 2 that it was not good, not tov, for the man to be alone. And so it's only when Eve is creative and male and female are joined together that the work of creation is finally complete. And so creation climaxes with community. Jesus' first public act of ministry, call disciples to call a community of 12 around himself. And the Holy Spirit descends in Acts 2, and what happens? Church is born. A community is created from, from all of the, you know, nations of the earth gathered in Jerusalem speaking different languages. This international, multicultural, multilinguistic, multi-ethnic community is born. And so whenever and wherever God shows up in a powerful way in Scripture, community is born. It's created. So our translation says uh, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity, which is, is the NIV's rendering of, in Hebrew it literally says how, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. And so God's people, uh, I think, is a good translation, but it just obscures the type, the character, the nature of community that we're talking about, and that's a family. That's what's envisioned in this psalm. To belong to a community is to belong to a family. And one of the gifts of birth, sometimes it's a mixed blessing, is we are born into a family. Literally, you're born, you enter a family. That's what you get. It's true of our natural families, and the same is also true of our spiritual family. Jesus talks in John about being born again or being born from above. And so to experience this new life, this new birth in Christ, is to immediately become a part of a family that's not of our own choosing, whether we like it or not. A family called church. And so faith is always personal, but it's never private. And you can no more be a Christian without the church than you can be a person without a family. 
St. Cyprian, who was the bishop of Carthage in North Africa, and he ministered at a very difficult time. There had just been a major persecution in the decade before. And so he was writing in the year 258, and he said, no one can have God as his father without having the church as his mother. And so community isn't an optional part of the Christian life. It's inherent to it. So the question then isn't, am I a part of this community? But how am I a part of it? How do I relate to it? How will I participate in it? It's not if, it's how. And this is really where the family metaphor is helpful. Because as all of us know from our own families, there are many ways that we can relate to our own families. Our families have, have, have different ways of relating to one another and we to them. Some people relate to their families by pretending that they don't exist, by having nothing to do with them, not talking to them, not seeing them. And there's all sorts of reasons for this, past hurt, betrayal, abuse, embarrassment, disappointment. Some people, they relate to their families by by keeping distant, you know, they'll visit for sure on holidays, and whenever they do, maybe they have that twinge of guilt, oh, I I should come more often, I should visit my family more often. There are those who, 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 who could never dream of ever being apart from their family. They're always at the family gathering, but maybe the type of person who you wish wouldn't always be at those family gatherings. You know, they show up and uh, they complain about the food and the decorations and the company and, and how other people in the family have wronged them or taken advantage of them. We can all identify maybe some of the characteristics of those family relationships in the church. The, I have nothing to do with it. I visit occasionally. Uh, I'm always there, but sitting there sort of, aren't I better than you for being a part of it and haven't you wronged me? But Peterson says that's not the only way. Yes, of course, there's many ways to be unhealthy. Who said all happy families are the same, but unhappy families are, Tolstoy said, yes, all happy families are the same. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own unique way. But Peterson says some determine regardless of these difficulties with family, to find out what God has in mind by placing them in this community called the church. They learn how to develop and function in it harmoniously and joyously and develop the maturity that is able to share and exchange God's grace with those who otherwise might be viewed as nuisances. And no one can accuse Scripture of being naive about the challenges of family life. And so the psalm, it speaks in terms of community, in terms of brothers and sisters, and all of us know, you know, whether we've had siblings or not, one thing that siblings do really well is what? Fight. Yes, absolutely. That's one of the things I most remember about having my sister growing up, and and we're very different people, and I love her and get along with her great now, but what do I remember about growing up together? I remember the fights. She had very strong legs, and so that was, her, that was her defense against me, as she would get back on the couch and use those to kick to sort of fend me off. Siblings fight, right? It's this beautiful notion. You know, it takes only two people to make a community. That's beautiful. Well, guess what it only takes two people to do? It takes two to tango, to fight, to have conflict. And one of the ways that we, we, we see, I mean, because community is so powerful, it's so important, it's so good, and that why, that's why it's such a useful conduit for sin to manifest itself, primarily and, and powerfully. In Scripture, we see the breakdown of community. Where sin takes root, community is destroyed. I mean, sin breaks the community between Adam 
and Eve. They sin, and what happens? They start blaming each other. I mean, we, we don't get very far. Uh, Genesis 4, we got two brothers, Cain and Abel. Murder. Abraham and Lot. So, so Abraham is Lot's um, uncle. And they can't even live together. They can't uh, live together. Family conflict, they separate ways. And in its words, actually, the language of the Abraham and Lot story, it, it echoes exactly Psalm 133, verse 1. It says, how beautiful and good it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. If we go to Abraham and Lot's story, it says that they had to separate because they couldn't dwell together. Jacob deceives Esau. Joseph's brothers hate him, so they fake his death and sell him to slavery. Saul wants to kill David. Absalom re- rebels against his father, David. The northern and southern kingdoms, they break in two. And so we could say that one of the central themes of of Scripture in the Old Testament is family conflict. And then consider our Lord. At one point in his ministry, Jesus' brothers thought he was crazy. They came to come get him out of of a situation. His closest friends abandoned him at his hour of greatest need. And Jesus dies the loneliest death. My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? So one of sin's effects, one of its primary uses for our adversary is to destroy the bonds of affection and truth that keep us together as one. And the reason I think that the devil hates community and sin loves destroying it is that when we are united together as brothers and sisters, we are so much more powerful than we could ever be on our own. United we stand, divided we fall. And, 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 and the enemy loves nothing more than to keep us divided and small and powerless. I mean, if you think about the things that we can do together, and these are maybe trivial examples. Some of them are not so trivial. You know, we've collected, uh, we, we set a goal of 50 backpacks. How many have we collected, Matt? 70 backpacks. We got 70 backpacks, which is amazing. And I thought 50 was an audacious goal. Yeah. Praise the Lord. Yeah. Woo, raise the roof. But no. But when Matt said 50, because we got 40 last year, when Matt said 50, I was like, come on, man. Can't we like set some more modest goals? I was like, I don't want to fail. This is so dumb. I don't want to fail and get like 45 and feel bad. But no, 70. Like, which is, you know, and, and which is so powerful because, you know, yay, good for us for getting 70. But still, it's like, think about Ace, the back to school thing, you know, in buying back to school supplies for my own children. It's like, easily can be over a hundred bucks a kid. And if you think about hundred dollars is so much money, you have a few kids going back to school. And so to be able to buy something, but for reduced cost, have the dignity and how many families are going to have more margin because of this. I mean, the hundreds of families who have already signed up for this and the fact that we can play a role, we couldn't do this on our own. Let me think about going to the boundary waters. You needed each other community. That's how it happened. We're running a marathon together. Like, community, that's how it happens, Anna. 15 miles yesterday, oh my gosh. And when I think of the first service, and Kylie just having the courage and bravery to share what she, the uncertainty she's walking into with her diagnosis, but letting us pray for her and be there for her in that moment. Knowing that she's not alone. She's not alone in the midst of this. That is so powerful. And so together... We can bear this very powerful witness in, the, in this neighborhood with each other that, that God is real. Christian faith isn't some relic of the past, but it's this living, it's this active, it's this vital force. And together we can do the work of demonstrating our obedience together to Jesus' great commandment. What's the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we think maybe, okay, we can do that on our own, you know? 
But second part, love your neighbor as yourself. As soon as we turn to our neighbor, we know there's no escaping the necessity of community. And Peterson says that we make explicit our commitment to the second part of the the great commandment, uh, loving our neighbor's part. He says we make it explicit in our act of worship each week by gathering as community. Because when we do that, other people are unavoidably present. As we come to declare our love for God, we must face the unlovely and lovely fellow sinners whom God loves and commands us to love. This must not be treated as something to put up with, one of the inconvenient necessities of faith in the way that paying taxes is an inconvenient necessity and consequence of living in a secure and free nation. Not only is it necessary, it's desirable that our faith have a social dimension, a human relationship. This is the spirit behind how he translates in the message, verse 1 of our psalm, how wonderful, how beautiful it is when brothers and sisters get along. It was, uh, you know, there's the great famous play by Jean-Paul Sartre, No Exit, and the sort of punchline is what? Hell is other people, right? Hell is other people. And, and, and that's a direct counter testimony to Scripture. That the kingdom is other people, is brothers and sisters getting along. And so we see in the first verse both, both the necessity of community, its promise, but also its challenges and its peril. The joy of having a family, but the real difficulties that are inherent with belonging to any family. And in our own day and age, it's easier than ever to opt out of community at, at almost every level of society. You know, wherever we are, we can throw on a pair of headphones and stare at a screen, sending a very clear message, don't bother me, leave me alone. We can order whatever we want without going to a store. We can work remotely. We don't even have to grocery shop or cook. We don't even have to fight over the remote control anymore. We each have our own screen. I I can't even imagine what this would have been like growing up, not having to share a TV. I never would have watched one episode of Designing Women growing up if I hadn't had to share the remote with people. And I never would have known the joys of Delta Burke. We don't have to talk. People don't talk to people anymore. They just text. You never have the joy of of calling someone on the phone, calling a girl you like or something like that and praying that the parents don't answer. Now you can just send a text. But our ability to avoid community, it has a cost. I just read an article this past week on uh, Vox.com that was talking about a study that was published that said that that there was a survey that went out and 22% of millennials, so I'm the oldest millennial, um, reported, so people, I think, 38 to 22 basically at this point, Um, 22% of millennials reported having no friends. That is one in five. That is staggering. And loneliness is really bad for us. There's all loneliness is, is, is one of the most dangerous public health crises that there are. It increases your chance of dying by 26%. And so loneliness is this pervasive societal ill, and it's killing us. And the answer to loneliness is community because God made us for it, and God designed his mission on earth to be carried out not by isolated individuals just doing their own thing, but by a community called church. And for these reasons and more community, it's worth the cost, the challenge. And when we think about what does the church have to offer our culture in this time and place, I really think that one of the most powerful things is community, because that's sort of what we do. 
It's the church's specialty, and it's what we have to offer a world that is increasingly isolated and filled with loneliness. So, so far we haven't moved past verse 1, but we've seen that community, despite its challenges, is good. It's something that's both good and essential for the pilgrimage of faith, but the last two verses, verses 2 and 3, they talk a little bit about why. They focus our attention on why. What is it about community beyond what we've said already that makes it good? Verse 2 says, well, here's what community is like. Here's why it's good. This is a good thing. This is what it's like. It's like precious oil being poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down Aaron's beard onto the collar of his robe. Now, that might sound a little gross. Oil on your head, like oil, that's like Like, think about pouring olive oil just on your head right now, and just, that was going to feel greasy, you know, you're going to not feel great with that oil coming down, but no, no, no. It's really good. Because it ain't just about oil going down on your head, and and, in the ancient world, oil was sort of like lotion, like lotioning up a little bit, you know? But, but, But beyond that, this isn't just any oil, and this isn't just any beard and any collar. We're talking here about Aaron. And so in this, we see that what's good about community is there's a priestly dimension to community. Here's what I mean. Aaron was the high priest. He was Moses' brother. And his role as the high priest was to, to, and when he was anointed as high priest, uh, oil was poured on his head. That's how he was consecrated, set apart for that role. And so as high priest, you know, his job was once a year ago on the Day of Atonement, go in the Holy of holies, the most holy place. And so, uh, to be the high priest, to, to be having this oil on you, this was to be someone who was a mediator between God and the people, to represent God and his presence and his grace, mercy, and forgiveness to the people, and also to represent the people to God. And so, in the Christian community, we fulfill this priestly role with one another. In the Reformation, Martin Luther talked about the priesthood of all believers. And what does that mean? In, in a practical way, it means that we get to fulfill this priestly role to one another, that, that, that we get to represent God to each other, and one another, we get to bring our needs before God. So we pray for each other. We care for each other. As priests, we draw attention to the fact that we're, this is not some ordinary group of ordinary people, but that we are surrounded by God's image bearers, God's living and breathing representations. C.S. Lewis gave this classic sermon. It's called The Weight of Glory. And at the end of it, he, he says these words that I think speak to the priestly dimension, the, the, the mediating God's presence dimension to what it means to be in community. He says at its climax, he says, it may be possible for each person to think too much of, of his or her own potential glory hereafter. But it's hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you meet now, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere 
mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we joke, with whom we work, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors, next to the blessed sacrament itself. Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. And so in Christian community, our attention is drawn time and again into the weight of glory that we all carry. Were we able to fulfill our priestly duty and obligation to one another? It is through one another that we get to see and experience Christ. So that's the first way that community is good. It awakens us to our priestly role. But the second way Christian community is good comes in verse 3. It is as if the dew of Mount Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. So community is good, and it's good because it's like oil running down someone's head to their beard to their collar, and it's like some dew from one mountain flowing down on another mountain. Now again, this is, is, is a strange image for us And in order for us to understand it, we need to understand the role that dew played uh, in a dry place like ancient Israel. And Mount Hermon was, if you ever go to the Holy Land, you can't miss Mount Hermon. It's a big, tall 9,000-foot mountain. It's a huge mountain um, in its context. It's actually one of the few places, or the only place in the Middle East you can go skiing, if you would like to. You can ski down Mount Hermon. I think it's in, in Lebanon. And so it's just this towering peak um, right in the north of Israel. And it's always snow-capped, and it was known for its, its heavy dews. And, and if you live in a dry place, the morning dew means water, and water always means life. And so community, then, is the source of abundant life. It's a, it's a source of renewal and refreshment, especially in dry places. And so what Psalm 133 is saying, then, is community is good because it, it, it produces and it fosters and it renews life. And as I was reflecting on, on really the truth of this principle, that community refreshes, renews, restores life, my mind went to this uh, really interesting book I read a few years back. It's called Change or Die. Change or Die is a great book. It's about like leadership. Um, and, and the premise of the book, it's about this confounding fact that when people, and by implication organizations, when they're faced with circumstances or situations in which they must change something about themselves, change or you're going to die, Almost invariably, I mean, all the time, people don't change. They choose death over life. One staggering statistic was that, you know, studying, there was a study of a group of people who had had heart bypass surgery. So, you know, they had had heart disease or a problem so bad that they need to get bypass surgery. And one of the things you can do to be healthy after that is to change your diet and your exercise and your lifestyle um, so that you can continue to live a healthy life. And they found that two years out, 90% of people who had had this heart bypass surgery did not change their lifestyles, and so they had significantly increased their chances of dying. I mean, this is an obvious fact. Change, and you can, you know, have X number of years, or don't change, and you're going to die a lot sooner. And people faced with that sort of stark choice chose not to change. And the reason that change is so hard is that we go about it the wrong way. We go about it in a way that can produce only a short-term change. And, and so it says, you know, that there's the three F's of, that are part of the myth of change. You know, work through fear, facts, or force. You know, we think if we just give people the right information, the right facts, they're going to change. Well, you know, eating an unhealthy diet makes, is going to kill you. Sorry, facts don't work. 
fears. You're going to die. Well, yeah, that, but that sort of seems like a long way off. And force, like you can't coerce someone for long enough. That's very, very challenging. They can, that fear facts force, they can produce short-term change, but they don't work over the long haul. So real life-transforming change comes from the three R's. Relate, repeat, reframe. And the first R, relationships, is the most important. And so the, the book says, we see reflected in this psalm, that for people to experience life, life change, they need new relationships, new habits, and a new narrative about themselves. And so the book says, changing your life means changing your community. We like to think that change is about finding the right process. You know, just identify the right process and you can keep doing it. But it's really about finding the right people. And so community is good because it has the power to allow us to experience the kind of life-giving, heart-transforming change that God desires for us all. And so these relationships are about that new life in Christ coming to us as we do what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called life together. And so we talk about, you know, what does it mean to be the church? You know, obey the great commandment, love God, love neighbor. The great commission, you know, make disciples. But we can't forget about Jesus' great promise where he says in John, I have come that you may have life and have it in abundance. And that's, I think, his twist on what we read at the end of our psalm, that, that Mount Zion is where God bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Even life forevermore. And so we see in Psalm 133, yes, community is good, it's necessary, and why it's good. But one thing, one last thing very briefly I want to say about is where this community comes from. Three times in our psalm, it talks about something coming down, pouring down. The, the oil flows down. The dew flows down. It's just the same verb each time that says descends. And so the image here is something coming down from above. And the point the psalm is making that I want to highlight is this, that true community and true unity aren't what we can conjure up from below, but they are a gift of grace from God above. And so when we attempt community or unity on our own terms, far too often it's sort of this least common denominator thing we can come up with. Or we replace the kind of community that comes with belonging to a family with institutional roles and responsibilities. But neither of these are a genuine substitute for the kind of unity that comes from God alone. And so may God grant us this unity. May we receive it, preserve it, protect it, and practice it so that people will see God's glory in our midst and experience new life in Christ in and through this community. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.